fade out the music and you're on, Doug. Rudy, good to be back. Good to be back. It is, man. It is. It's been here on Giant Steps. Absolutely, for the, sure. The giantest podcast in the world. <laughs> it's been it's been good. We're making up for uh, we're trying to catch up for for the for the down weeks. A little. We got to do that. Absolutely. Get the get those ratings up. Yeah. Actually, we I actually got a an email saying that uh, we're ranked. Our podcast is ranked. Oh, again? But then I'm thinking, so, uh, like, ranked in what? Like, how right. small of a division do you have to get to in order for this thing? To right, exactly. So, on Top on 10 a, podcast in the world. On, on episode. Under the <laughs> on, triple subsection of. <laughs> on, know, on shows hosted by guys. Impossible. On shows hosted by guys named Doug and Rudy. Exactly. That's exactly <laughs> We're number one. <laughs> so, man, my girls say that I'm pretty cool. Are you? So, Dad, you're hip, man. You're hip. Because of the because of the love I, you're getting online. I said, Why is that? They say they say, Dad, your hair is parted down the middle. That's hip. <laughs> did said, what are you talking about? Did you tell her that, yeah, it, Dad? Did, you're, did, you're hip, and and you look like you, you worked on your hair today. I said I comb my hair. I do that every day, man. I don't know what the deal is. <laughs> and you got like a you got like a Greg Norman shirt on too. You're you're hip, man. Did you tell her that it's called a feather haircut and we made it popular in the 80s? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I said I haven't cut my hair for a while. I guess that's what you're talking about. It's come back around is what it is. You got the chain on, Dad. You're hip. There you yeah, go. Yeah, but I've had the chain since like 1986. Come on, girl. <laughs> well, so I guess awesome. uh, it's, it's hip to be 80s again. I guess. That's right. It's hip to, what was it? What was the Hugh Lewis song? It's hip to be square. Hip to be square. That's hip right. To be square. Classic. Dude, I love that we got that in common, man. You know, that could have totally been like totally... That could totally not have been our thing, you know. It's it was providential that you and I are locked up in music. It could have been like went, it could have been like, hey Doug, you know, what are you into? And you could have been like the Grateful Dead, man, you know. And I mean, that man, I went to the I went to the Huey Lewis concert. The uh, I think it was the would have been the four concert, yeah, so the one after yeah, sports, totally. Oh yeah, I got the T-shirts. Went to went to the concert. So my dad's very very um, conservative guy. I said, Dad, I'm, I'm headed off tonight. Where are you going? Going to a concert. What kind of a concert you going to? I'm going to I'm going to see Huey Lewis in the news. He goes, well, What's that? Are they a bunch of drug addicts? And I go, I go, No, Dad, they want a new drug. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> Very nice. Very nice. So, um, so did you uh, did you hear about this little uh, this little event of the day today? You talking about the phone uh, AT and T thing? Yeah. Yeah, very very interesting. I I only heard a little bit about it. So apparently, um, and here I have a I have a little map of it to show you. But apparently, the 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 thing was, you know, that we woke up to the fact that um, we woke up to the fact that apparently there had been widespread outages all over the country on AT and T. So apparently, a lot of people were freaking out. Understandably, you know. Um, now that's a that's a big that's a lot of outages there. Nah, it is a lot of outages, and so. So the interesting thing, though, you know, because it happens. I mean, obviously, the whole country's, you know, kind of a little bit on on alert for cyber attacks. Have been there's been a lot of chatter about that and whatnot, you know. But the 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 part that's just the eye rolling part of all this is that immediately the narrative came out from the powers that be that this was a solar flare. Right. Yeah, I heard that. Yeah. However, <clears throat> when people started pointing out that solar flares hit the part of the world or the earth that are exposed to the sunlight first it's impossible for people at one in the morning pacific time to have outages 
at which time that was happening. What? Yeah. So you guys in the you, well out in the West Coast, it was one a.m. when this happened. You know, and the other thing too is that this was only relegated to the continental United States, apparently, and it was relegated to just certain cell phone companies, mainly AT and T, but I guess companies that have to connect with AT and T. Yeah. So, right. so yeah. So that that narrative of the solar flare died a, a rather didn't quick, last long. No. <laughs> It came and it went. What did they end up saying it was? Was a, a cyber attack? No, they're not. They're not fessing up to that. What they're saying is that um, that it might have been some programming within the company as they were doing some kind of upgrade or whatever. That's not the company. That's not AT and T saying that. That's you know news organizations and whatnot that are analyzing it more you know realistically. So I don't know that we'll ever know, to be honest with you. If that was the case, then obviously that's not good PR for them, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know that we'll ever know. Realistically speaking, man, it could have very well have been a cyber attack, and it just they don't want to create a panic, you know? Or it's a, just a dry run for what's coming or it, later on this year. Exactly, man, exactly. I didn't say that. Did I say that? <laughs> well, I mean, I think we're all, we're all kind of, that's the, the quiet, that's saying the quiet part out loud, basically, you know? So I just thought that was interesting, Inter an interesting way to uh, to start the day and to go into the weekend. <laughs> yeah, I had heard about it, but I got so busy today that I didn't, I believe it or not, I didn't look into the day's events yet. So that'll, that'll happen after the show, I guess. Be because, you're, because your phone worked. <laughs> well, exactly. <laughs> you get on the phone after. And I, and it's, and I have AT&T, <laughs> I mean, and it says that it hit Denver area. So yeah, yeah I guess uh, maybe I would have had to get up at four in the morning to right. know that it wasn't working. Anymore. Exactly, exactly. So, so yeah. So in interesting uh, sign of the times, man. We're we're way too interdependent on technology, you know. We're thankful for it. Don't get me wrong, because oh, that's yeah. what allows us to do this. But man, oh man, are we um, are we dependent on it? You know. Why do I have a feeling that we're probably going to be talking about some of this stuff a little bit more as the months draw on in twenty twenty four? You think? <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm pretty pretty confident. Yeah. On that one. But we don't want to talk about that. Tonight. No, we're not going to get political other, tonight. Other no, not at all. So, so you know, last week um, or on our last episode, we talked about really a question that somebody had asked me. And I've been getting people asking more and more questions. So that one was on Original Sin. But but uh, I had a fellow ask me a question about the Deuteronomy 32 worldview and how it uh, deepens our understanding of Jesus. Mm -hmm and the Gospels, and and um, a New Testament, eschatology, Satan, the whole deal. And we haven't talked about that. I think probably it was either, it was, it was probably our Angel of the Lord topic mm -hmm. that got mm -hmm. him thinking about yeah. that. Yeah. And so I thought, I thought it'd be fun to maybe talk about that tonight. What do you say? Let's do it, man. Dive in. Let's do it. Let's pull up the, uh, the, the reading over here. Um, here we go. Yeah, so we'll start off here with the Deuteronomy 32, but we're going to do a special version of it for folks. So you're going to be calling up here Whoa. what is called Targum Jonathan or Targum Pseudo Jonathan, sometimes called. Yeah. And um, so just a little bit of background for people who don't know anything about a Targum. Targums are Arama Aramaic as opposed to Hebrew. Aramaic was really kind of a cousin language. So if you go down to the border at Texas and Mexico... You'll hear Spanglish, right? Right. That's kind of what Aramaic and Hebrew are to one another. Or, a, or, they're very closely related. Or my girlfriend's not in, in my conversation. You know, you might also hear Spanglish. 
<laughs> She's <laughs> you, Colombian. You guys are... <laughs> Well, oh, there you Co go. Colombian raised in Miami, so yeah, absolutely. You, you're Spanglish. <laughs> and a Bolivian raised in Miami. Bolivian raised in Miami. How does that work its way out, man? <laughs> good, man, but it's a good thing we're Christians because a Colombian, a Bolivian, that'd be trouble making, you know, that'd be bad business. <laughs> Why do I feel like there's a couple jokes there somewhere that I've never heard before? Well, yeah, the I mean, Colombian, you know, the Bolivian walked into the mall, into the bar. That's right. That's right. And and they got stopped and searched. The end. <laughs> well, exactly. <laughs> So, and they got put on the cartel so Atargum watch list. So Atargum is a, <laughs> a, targum is a uh, it's an Aramaic paraphrase, really, of the Old Testament. And um, there were several of them that were around. And so you'll see that this is actually labeled as Deuteronomy 32.8. But it's not scripture, it's the Targum. Okay, so uh, I kind of liken that, I kind of liken it to the message Bible, it's not really the Bible, but it kind of is. Right. right. <laughs> so, right. so, you know, um, and, and especially pseudo-Jonathan, it's much more expansive and uses a lot of traditions that other places don't. You'll see this here. So when we read uh, this verse in, in the scripture, it's much, much shorter. But the expansion here is really where I want to go to help people think through this idea of how does the Deuteronomy worldview help us understand the New Testament. And you'll see why as we read it. So... A lot of it's the same. In fact, all of it will be the same, but there will be additions to it. Yep. So it says, When the Most High gave allotment of the world unto the nations. So what it's doing there is it's actually giving you the interpretation as it says it. Um, whereas, you know, the, the scripture actually says, When the Most High just gave to the nations their inheritance. But this is talking about the allotment of the nations of the world. They're getting, they're getting this. And then it tells you when it happened which proceeded from the sons of Noah in the separation of the writings and languages of the children of men at the time of the division. So it's locating this, whereas the scripture doesn't, it tells you that this is what it's talking about, is, which is Babel. So in that way, it's kind of acting as a commentary. And then notice what it says next. He cast the lot among the 70 angels, the princes of the nations, with whom is the revelation to oversee the city, even at the time he established the limits of the nations according to the sum of the numbers of the 70 souls of Israel who went down into Mizraim or Egypt. So this, this Targum is actually giving, I've told this story many times, like how I came into this whole worldview was actually from a paper that Dr. Heiser did on this verse. Yeah. And the, um, the paper talks about the sons of God versus the sons of Israel as being uh, like, which one is it? Because right. you read it, different translations will have different renderings of that. And what this Targum is doing is it's bringing both of those traditions into the same verse. So at the end of it, it's talking about the number of the souls of Israel. But in the middle of it, it's talking about the 70 age, angels. And notice the word number of the 70 souls of Israel. The number is the, seven, the, sa the same thing. Yep. 70. Yep. 70 is the number. And, you know, th they actually, it's a, it's a different... It's a different show. You could probably do a whole show on this. I know we could. The 70 Israelites, that number is actually 75 if you read the book of Acts and Stephen's commentary on that. Not 70. But nevertheless, at some point in time, the Hebrew Masoretic text ended up saying 70. So that became their justification for changing the sons of God to the sons of Israel, which there's no justification for that at all. <laughs> in fact, the older tradition is that, that the number of the sons of God actually refers to the 70 angels. So when it when the scripture uses the number of, 
the number in all the traditions was the number 70. In fact, that's the number that's used at Ugarit um, for the Baal, uh, El and Asherah and the 70 sons of El. So it wasn't just Israel that had this as a tradition. This was a, this was a very common tradition in the ancient Near East that there was these 70 angels that it calls the princes of the nations, right? Princes in uh, the Greek is the word archon. And I don't think we've talked about this on giant steps, but you can find out about these princes of the nations very clearly if you read um, a certain prophetic book in the Old Testament, the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 10. Yep. It talks about, remember, in fact, it, if you go to the next verse here in the Targum, it talks about Michael and Gabriel, and it's kind of getting that same idea. Well, that's that's what you find in Daniel 10 is Gabriel, you know, Daniel's been praying for a while and he needs help. And so Gabriel says, I'm sorry, Daniel, that I was so late to answer your prayer. I, right. was, I was three weeks fighting against the prince of Persia. And you're like, what in he the world does that resistance. mean? So, yeah, so Gabriel is an angel. We know that. But yeah. who in the world is the prince of Persia? Yeah. And uh, it can't possibly be like King Ezra Hardin or something like no. that because an angel is not going to fight against a king. That doesn't make any right. sense. It's a spiritual But battle. if you understand the tradition, you understand that the angels are fighting each other. And they're actually territorial spirits that are over the nations. There are 70 of them, which matches the number of the nations that are in the Tower of Babel uh, genealogy, the story of Genesis 10, the sons of Noah. There's 70 generations. So the idea is that there were 70 sons of God given to the 70 nations. So each one of the angels, these fallen angels, got a nation to rule over it. Okay, so... That's is that clear as mud, or is that actually clear? As no, a, that's very clear. In fact, like a diamond. No, no, it, it's very clear. In fact, it it makes me wonder. Does it? It doesn't go to name them, does he? Like he doesn't name what the seventy nations were, or does it? Well, it names them in terms of the nations of of the sons of Israel. So you'll find, um, you know, the names of the names of Noah's children. But every once in a while, you'll find like Egypt is there. So some of them are actually called na nations themselves. You won't read Greece or Rome or anything mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. they weren't around. But right, um, so uh, you know, Gog and Magog, that kind of stuff. That's in there. Yeah, it'd be uh, interesting. It'd be interesting to try to do a a comparison of where and what and how evil or how decadent or whatever the the nations of that time were to see which of those angels uh were possibly angels that actually that actually fell Does well that make sense? so i think that they i think they were all fallen yeah but all the I don't ones think that were given territories evil i yeah i do because yeah. because it's as it's they're given as punishment if you go and read like Deuteronomy chapter four, it, it it basically says that look these the sun moon and stars don't go and worship them they were allotted to the nations. Okay. Um, and then but you read a little bit later in Deuteronomy and it kind of is the reversal like like they were given to you they were given to the Gentiles so they're given to each other and why because there was something that evil happened at the Tower of Babel. That makes okay? that actually so makes total sense. Because they're evil, yeah, it's a fallen thing. It these are not these are not good angels, but. I don't think that they're all of equal um, 
uh, evil. They're, well, and they're and also not given to the same propensities of evil. Like they're not all child sacrificing murderers. Right. And that's and that's what I, and that's what I'm getting at. It'd be interesting to see um, if we if there was a way of knowing, which we probably don't, but which you know which angels that were more evil, that were more, um, if, if, yeah, if how, how they affected their territories in the natural sphere, you know what I mean? Like, for example, if we're looking at the, at the, you know, angels that, um, that would have been like over Sodom and Gomorrah, for example, or the angels that would have been over, um, you know, Assyria or over, uh, or over Babylon, were they as, as bad as, as the lands that weren't necessarily, or like say over Nineveh, you know, and compare the uh, the amount of evil that they influenced or or caused in over their territories. If that makes sense. Yeah, I, we actually know a little bit about this, at least from a from a biased source, because mm -hmm. Plato talks about this in the Critias. He actually is basically um, plagiarizing Moses. He says, "Remember long ago when the gods were taking over by the lot." the whole earth according to its regions <laughs> like he straight up the verse we just read yeah and then he says this in in other regions others of the gods had their allotments and ordered their affairs but inasmuch as hephaestus and athena now check this out were of a like nature being born of the same father and agreeing moreover in their love of wisdom and of craftsmanship they both took for their joint portion this land of ours, Greece. Of course. <laughs> in other words, oh, of course. In other words, we got the best of them. Right, man. Yeah, we're the, we're the enlightened ones. <laughs> it's it's so it's so funny That's to awesome. read that. Yeah. But he he's actually addressing exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. The other the other gods are are much more wicked compared to ours. That's what Plato is basically saying. Yeah. Yeah. And again, the, so the, how again the, the, the congruence between the uh, the 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 basis of of Greek Roman Norse mythology and how um how the how the they attribute this these you know polytheistic um mindsets to there being multiple gods in the in the atmosphere so somewhere there's a common thread that goes all the way back to the origins of that Oh sure well they're they're actually it's called um orientalizing is what it is and and as the Greek you know think about it um uh You've got the you've got the Medes and the Persians that are the great empire right before Alexander the Great is born, and then he comes and he takes them over. Well, he has to go into their territory to fight them to do that. And what does that mean? Well, what happens is you end up conquering um, that country, and then you end up essentially taking their gods as yours, but you Greekize them. And then uh, when the Romans did that to the Greeks, then they Romanized them. This is why Jupiter is Zeus. So all, all the Romans are doing is they're taking that God. Well, Zeus, they got that from the Middle East, and Zeus is Baal, same right. entity, because right. as they go across, they're just taking it and, and making, making him their own, saying he's, he's, he's the high God, he's, but now he's over us or whatever. And, like and arguably, arguably, Catholicism kind of carries that on into the post-Christian era, didn't they? I mean, because you could— you In could, what sense? Well, you could argue that they that the that the Romans um, basically changed the names of all these gods, these demigods, and turned them into all these saints, all the all the saints. So, not necessarily oh, yeah. not necessarily that they believed that you know Venus became Mary or whatever, but it's a whole lot easier for them as a society, as a culture, to uh, 
when when the decree was made, everybody will be a Christian now. It was a lot easier right. for them to replace their in their mind mentally to replace the the polytheistic um, their polytheistic worldview by turning all the saints into demigods, basically, and treating them as such. Well, they're kind of doing that, yeah. And they're also, uh, you know, the the whole idea of idolatry, what you would do with an idol, is very, very similar to what Rome does with the saints and the saint veneration. Exactly. Um, yeah, I think there's probably a lot of stuff going on. There's also the whole idea of kind of Christianizing the paganism. So if there, yes. if there was a feast day, I mean, we know this about Christmas, Easter, and stuff like that. There's feast days for the gods, so what do you do? You Christianize it. Well, exactly. if you have... If you have a Christian calendar and you have a saint this day, saint that day, saint that day, it's not that they're all doing this, but at some at some points in time, I would have a, I haven't done the deep study on it, but I would have a feeling that some of these saints are actually, yeah, they're taking directly over for a certain god of that day that we're going to Christianize. Yeah, and the further in, in the fringes you get out, when you get to places like Latin America, you know, hundreds, you know, fifteen hundred years later and they start mixing with the with the paganism of the of the land then you start coming up with all these things like the you know the feasts of the dead and all this stuff that are that are actually treated like like they have a christian uh a christian base but they're completely intertwined with straight up witchcraft you know so anyway i'm getting i'm getting out exactly there. no no it's it's totally relevant you're, yeah. what you're doing is you're going beyond the new testament and you're showing how this worldview is actually quite related to the paganism that we still see around the world yeah, today. Which is, which not is even why, just paganism, but yeah, the Catholicism. Which is why I tell everybody, it's, 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 if you don't study the Nephilim, if you don't study, and I shouldn't say the Nephilim, but this, this worldview of the Watchers and the yeah, Nephilim, the and all that, if you don't study that, um, it's easy to silo the, the stories that you read in the Old Testament. And you read about the, the Nephilim and you kind of think, oh, that's that thing that happened back in Genesis 6. But it, it's not. It's an ongoing thread that does not stop, and that's still very much going. You know. That's correct. Yeah. So uh, let's talk about this in two senses, I guess, if, as we make our way into the New Testament. We'll talk about the sons of God from Genesis 6 and Deuteronomy 32, and then we'll talk about the Nephilim and, and how they're related to this whole story and how they're related to actually the New Testament. And then we can, you know, we can do a little bit of talk about um, Satan and you know the the chiastic stuff I did with Revelation yeah. that I think will be helpful too. Yeah. And so as we think about the seventy, this is what this is what I like to tell people is that the the seventy number is very important throughout Scripture for a very specific reason. And you have to remember that these beings in the text are called sons of God, sons of God. And one of the great objections that Christians who don't like the supernatural worldview have is that they read Sons of God in the New Testament, for example, and they'll say, well, that's talking about Christians. Or they'll go to a passage in Exodus 4, and they'll go, Israel is the firstborn son. In other words, all sons of God are human. Right. And what I want to say is, well, certainly those are human, but you're not understanding the worldview and why we are called sons of God and why Israel is called the son of God. Absolutely. And when you get the divine supernatural side of this, then all of a sudden, this entire worldview comes blasting into the New Testament in ways that you could have never possibly have understood. Absolutely. 100%. Okay, so it begins really uh, with, first of all, with God taking a nation for himself. So in the very next verse in Deuteronomy, it says, but the Lord's portion is 
his people. Jacob is his allotted inheritance. And I, I believe we talked about this with the angel of the Lord. Mm-hmm. Or, or maybe well, I know we talked about one of the episodes that I'm sure, the Lord there has to be the Son of God has right. to be because He's receiving an allotment and an inheritance. That's right, and He's getting it from the Most High. So the Lord Yahweh in that verse has to be the Son, and He's getting an inheritance of a particular nation that didn't even exist at the Tower of Babel at all. He had to make it out of clean, thin air from this dude named Abram who was worshiping idols and the foreign gods in Babylon. Right. So it starts right there. And that's the group of people that God then says, Israel is my firstborn son. And that's said in, you know, Exodus 4.22 is the verse that that's found. But then you go cruising along in Exodus a little bit, and all of a sudden you come to this story after the Ten Commandments are given on Mount Sinai, and the people are, you know, there's there's a little bit more law that's given then. All of a sudden you have... The angel of the Lord warning passage of you better obey his voice and stuff like that. And then all of a sudden, chapter 24, there's this invitation to Moses and Aaron and his four sons. And guess who? The 70 elders of Israel. And what are they going to do? They're going to go up on the side of the mountain of Mount Sinai and they're going to behold God and they're going to eat with him. And it's like, what, what's going on there? So, so a mountain, 70, going up onto it. This is exactly what we find in all the divine council stories yep. of the ancient Near East. The 70 gods are meeting on the cosmic divine mountain yep. in order to administer the affairs of the cosmos. Well, who? it's not just any old 70 guys. And Moses isn't playing duck, duck, goose or something like that and picking out just random people. It's the 70 elders. These right. are the people that, that earlier Jethro said, take these guys, separate them out and make them be judges over the peoples. So these guys are now going as the 70 representatives to a kind of reconstitution of the divine council. But now it's not made up of heavenly beings. It's made up of human beings. There's a reversal going on. And the reason why is because of you know, Psalm 82, and God is going to judge these uh, fallen yep. gods because they've judged unjustly, and he's going to allow his son to inherit all the nations. But that has to begin with the nation of Israel and those 70. Very, very important, significant, massive number. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so then that 70 number becomes in, tran- in, um, in tradition— and then in history, sometime probably 2nd, 3rd century B.C., it becomes the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin are the scribes, the priests, the rulers of Israel. In fact, these are the very people, and I don't think this is a coincidence, that put Jesus Christ to death on the cross. Yeah. They, they are basically inheriting the 70 elder idea and tradition that you find in Exodus and in the book of Numbers. They become the Sanhedrin with a high priest at the top, and something goes terribly, terribly wrong. Was there, was there the a final seven, time. Was there a, do we know if there was a, any, anything in the rabbinic law about there being a, do they make up the Sanhedrin? Is there 70 of them, basically? Or do, yeah, there's 70 of them, and then, there I mean, is, that's right? tradition. Right? 70 of them, and then you have a high priest. Okay, so, so there 71. is. There is that, but that, 
Yeah, but that's the, I mean, that's exactly what we find uh, with the divine council itself, because sure. you have 70, 70 sons of God yep. and one son of God. Right. The one is over them all, and he is the one who gets Israel as his inheritance. That's right. That's right. Right? Yep. I didn't, okay, I didn't so know these... that. I did not know that. I didn't know that the seven, the oh, yeah. Sanhedrin total yep. 70, that's amazing. That's crazy. Oh, yeah. Nothing coincidental, man. Oh, yeah. So oh. before they put Jesus to death, Jesus does something in Luke's gospel. And this is as he's making his way down out of Galilee towards Jerusalem. He, he, he gathers up 70 disciples, and he sends them out two by two to go and proclaim the gospel and then to come back and report to him what happened. And as they do this, they're going to see that they can tread on serpents and scorpions and demons will be subject to them. All this weird supernatural stuff's going on yep. as he tells them to do this. Yep. What, what's going on? going on with that so jesus knows that the sanhedrin is going to crucify him and he knows that this whole project with israel was never meant as an end to itself so the whole point of abraham having his name changed to the father of many nations is a signal way back in genesis that this goes way beyond the nation of israel Yes, in Deuteronomy 32, he receives Israel as his inheritance. However, Psalm 2, and we went through this you know, on, in, in an earlier episode, Psalm 2 tells us that there's a promise that if he just asks the Father, he'll give him all the nations. And then Psalm 82 tells us that because the gods ruled unjustly and wickedly, they will die like men, but he will inherit all the nations. So what you find happening with the 70 disciples is this is a this is a foreshadowing of something that's going to take place um, a little bit later on in Luke's second book, which is the book of Acts. Yep. So this is this is this is a massive way that the Deuteronomy worldview can help us understand our New Testament. So what happens? The Sanhedrin put Jesus to death. He he dies. He rises. He ascends to heaven. And then when he ascends to heaven, the Holy Spirit descends on all these. It's very interesting. It doesn't give 70 nations, but at, the, at Pentecost, you have all these Jews, and it says, from every nation under heaven. Yep. And they're all gathered there in Jerusalem. Peter preaches a sermon to them. Yep. And then what happens is they convert in mass, and we don't hear from them again because well, they were in Jerusalem visiting for Pentecost, and they all went back to where they were at. That's the occasion where, the, where so, there were three thousand saved, I think, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's exactly what it was. So they, uh, so they, you know, they were from Rome and Pontus and Bithynia and Galatia and uh, Cappadocia, all these places. They went back to where they were at. But what is that, Rudy? That's a representation of the seventy nations. Absolutely. It's not. It's not the number, but it's the exact same idea. Yep. Okay, so. Now you have for a few chapters the the twelve disciples essentially with you know with they've now added a few deacons and stuff like this and then Saul comes into the picture becomes Paul, but they're all hanging out in Jerusalem. They're not doing what Jesus told them to do. Yeah. He gave them a very specific command: go and make disciples of all the nations. That's right. That's right. But they're like, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to hang out here. So God deliberately sends persecution to them and forces them to leave. Yep. They have no choice. Yep. And so that becomes the beginning, then, of the missionary journeys of Paul. And as Paul's going out from place to place, he's got very specific things in mind. And it's not just Paul, because, you know, we know in Acts that Barnabas goes out, but we know from church tradition that the 12 apostles themselves all went to various places 
around the earth to start proclaiming the gospel. And tradition says that Thomas went all the way to India, died there as a martyr. Some of them went down into Africa. Some of them go, you know, farther towards towards uh, uh, Kazakhstan, what we call that today. Some most of them probably go up into Europe or whatever. Some of them make it all the way to Britain. Um, but the whole idea is that they they understand that they need to go to the known world to proclaim the gospel. Now, there's a really interesting thing that happens with Paul um, in the book of Romans. At the end of Romans, he's kind of he's kind of writing the the finalizing touches to his letter, and he says. I really want to come and see you guys, but I got to make it up to Spain. I got to get to Spain. I got to make it to Spain. And you're like, well, why does he need to make it to Spain? And this is actually really kind of the thrust of the whole unseen realm that Heiser writes, that I actually think a lot of people miss this point. And it's maybe the main point of his book, that Spain represents the ends of the world. I, it's I was as just far about to say away that. as you get. Yeah, because that's the right. uh, that's the other ocean. That's the other the other of the known world. That is the other ocean. I mean, when they launched, and I mean, we're talking we're not talking about you know oh back in the in biblical days and that's it. Fourteen ninety two. Where did they launch from? That exact coast from Spain. Yeah, there you go, Portugal. Portugal. Spain. Yeah, the, you know the the town Tarshish. Yeah, that uh, Jonah goes to. The the whole point of Tarshish is that it was a seaport town at the very outskirts of Spain. In other words, God tells him to go as far east as he can go to Nineveh. He says, nope, I'm going to go as far west as I can possibly <laughs> manage to get. Oh, that, that makes a lot of sense, actually, yeah. He's okay, running, boy. So Tarshish, yeah, and, and that's an Old Testament connection to Spain. So Tarshish and, and Spain are kind of into the world sort of thing. Yep. Well, why does Paul need to get there? Because he understands that the 70 nations have to be reached with the gospel. Now, church tradition tells us that Paul made it to Spain. However, Luke stops the book of Acts before he gets there. And I think that that's a very deliberate move on his part, because I think Luke knew he went to Spain, but he also knew that in the way that he tells the story that we Christians from the second generation with Timothy and Titus all the way down to us and as far until Jesus comes back, we need to know that the mission hasn't stopped. The 70 is a symbolic number. Yeah. So just, you know, if he would have ended it with Spain, then he, you know, we could have all washed our hands and said, all right, well, the mission's done. Good to go. It would have been, Nobody it, else would, needs to hear it, would, it would have been George Bush with that, uh, with the, with the flight jacket on, on the aircraft carrier. Mission accomplished. <laughs> mission accomplished. <laughs> So the 70 is a huge, huge number, and, uh, you know, it's, revol it's, it's connecting the storyline of Israel directly to the church. Israel was supposed to be, like Isaiah, you're supposed to be the mountain, and all the people will stream uphill to, to my blessed yeah. mountain, and you're going to be a blessing to the world. Well, they never were that, because they're full of sin and evil and fallen people. And yes, the church is too. However, Jesus does something with a, with a new covenant that makes it so that his power will end up working, even though we Christians are just as fallen and sinful as the Jews of the Old Testament yep. were. Yep. So it's really a story about it's really a story about God's power. Uh, it's it's a story that the whole thing, the crux of it, takes place at the cross when that new covenant is cut in His blood, at the resurrection when He 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 wins back life for Himself and for all those who come to Him and and. Uh, all the way into the Holy Spirit, who then gives that power 
to his people. But this, the, the 70 is one of these ways that I show people, look, the divine council worldview makes every difference in the world to how we understand um, the evangelistic mission of the church and to how we, how we understand the supernatural stuff that's related to that. So you have any thoughts about that? Before we go on to the next one, no, I think I think it's interesting. I kind of get hung up on a, on a few things. The whole thing about Spain is really really interesting. It's almost a an unofficial foreshadowing of, you know, I mean, I realize that in the grand scheme of things, the you know the the Western world, or you know, with, I don't want to get myself in trouble here, but the the civilized Western world, the industrialized Western world, is still relatively new in the in the grand scheme of things. Oh yeah, but it's extremely important in the history of mankind i mean you know the where we are where we i don't care who says what you know everything from learning to make airplanes to eventually getting to the moon and and everything else beyond and technological technologically and everything um america and people are not moving here and swimming across shark infested waters and walking deserts because it's terrible here you know in in a certain sense it, it is the human promised land in, in, in a way, like I said, I'm not trying to get in trouble here, but my point is that it was the, what you're, what you're talking about, the, 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 the ends of the earth basically being in being Spain or that, you know, that far out that ocean, it symbolically, we, we were in his mind the, you know, yeah. the, 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 the Western world, it wasn't just the Gentiles up to that point, right? There That's was the right. Gentiles that were yet to come. And that's yeah, specifically that us, man, you know? Yeah, man, I love that you connected um, uh, C Columbus coming over to the Americas yeah. from Spain, because I think that that's a, I mean, that's a great segue it, to the fact that God knows that there's an entire two, two continents over here that need people to know the gospel. It, it, they, they, could have, they could have sailed from Italy. They could have sailed from, from England. They could, you know, but it was, it was very specific that, you know, the first time that I ever heard that Spain was actually mentioned in the Bible, it blew my mind. I, you know, it, <laughs> yeah. it hit me out of nowhere, you know. So I, I think that's very symbolic, you know. I love that. That's a great observation. So we, uh, we're, we're going to move to the princes of the world for a minute because we're still talking about the sons of God. So, you know, in, in Daniel, it talks about the prince of Persia, and it gives another one by name, the prince of Greece. And, you know, you, we could debate this, but uh, Plato is actually writing way before Alexander takes over. Yeah. And so things could things could actually be different in my mind. Like like one God can take over another place that I actually think that that's possible. Yeah. In the same way, I think it's as in heaven, so on earth or in this case on earth. So as in heaven, right. that if an if one nation comes and it's USSR and all of a sudden it's gobbling up all these little satellite countries, those countries cease to exist and they become part of the USSR. And, you know, the, the guy sitting there in the Kremlin in Moscow becomes their ruler. And I think that we could probably make a case that that's going on in Greece as well. The reason I say that's because the Prince of Greece, you know, we just read that um, Plato said the Hephaestus and Athena were put over Greece. However, um, I said also that when you get to Zeus, who becomes the high, high god of Greece, he's Baal. Yeah. Like they literally took, it's the storm god from both cultures. It's the same, it's the same entity. Yeah. And, and then Baal becomes, in the New Testament, Satan. 
And Satan, you know, after Greece becomes the power, then you have Rome becomes the power. And uh, so there's all kinds of reasons of paper up on academia that kind of explains my reason for thinking that Satan is the prince of Rome, most properly speaking. So, so this is you're, why you're dealing, but you're dealing at this point where you're, you're basically talking about nomenclature, though, right? Not it was the same being all along, but you're talking. Well, about the, what I'm saying is, yeah, I think that the, I think that if I think that Zeus and the prince of Rome are the same being, I'm not sure that I would say that the prince of Greece in Daniel's time is Satan. It could be a different guy, because. You know, they they might get taken over, or or whatever the case might be. They might have imported a, a, another god, or whatever. That that to me, that's really not that important of an idea. But I do think the idea that Satan is the prince of Rome becomes really important, and it's rooted in that Daniel worldview mm-hmm. that these princes are these powers over the nation. They're the seventy that were given to the nations. Right. So when you come to the New Testament, Jesus is tempted, for example, in the temptation by who? By Satan. And he goes, hey, uh, it, it takes him to High Mountain. I believe it's Mount Hermon. Takes him to the top of it and offers him all the kingdoms of the world. I'll give these to you if you just bow down to me. Yeah. Well, who does Satan think he is? A lot of people will say, he doesn't have anything. Jesus is the king of kings. Yes, he is, but he emptied himself. He didn't take that divine prerogative upon himself when he came here. He became one of us. And Satan, according to law and according to the inheritance of the sons of God in Deuteronomy 32, and however it works it out in the way the wars that they have, Satan becomes top top dog at that time, and he has the legal authority over those nations exactly. to give Jesus to give them to exactly. Jesus. Exactly. Yeah, and he felt empowered by that because because he knows, you know, he he knows that if if up to this point God's not gone back and said, okay, I'm taking this back from you, he feels like he's still legally the owner. He still got the 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 you know the title deed to the to the heir. And, and I believe that he did have that title deed um, in every sense until the crucifixion and the resurrection. Oh, for sure, for sure. At that point in time, something changes legally. However, I do think that he still had had and has a kind of ruling power, but it's it's now a it's now a power that's been bound in some sense. So we talked about that as well. Well, if you if you look at the you know if you look at the ministry of Jesus, you know where where he is where he is basically casting out demons and doing all that stuff. He's there. There's a reason why we use the term taking authority, taking authority, you know, so so that means that the authority is there, but you take it from them. You know, so I, I believe that I believe that I believe that the that the title deed was given, you know, and and um, and and with a with a steep, steep price of the, the blood of the son of God, we have uh sporadic maybe or 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 um on a case-by-case basis we have the the authority to take it back you know and and, and i believe that's biblical you know yeah because jesus is the one who won that authority from him in a legal transaction at the cross it was a it was something very very significant legal um that took place at that moment so you it's know, almost like a, we, almost like a like a um, like a repo. <laughs> so so there are yeah. there are areas where we can where we can. It, it, obviously, it wasn't a blanket removal of the. It wasn't a revocation or a, or a revoking of that of that of that legal the, of the title deed. But it but it's created a major loophole in that law for us to be able to go in 
on the blood of Jesus and take back again, going back to taking back, taking authority. So, um, so yeah, no, I hear you. I hear you. It's kind of like the inheritance has happened. Jesus is now going to inherit the nations, but that's going to take place in stages. And the, and the, uh, the final judgment, uh, the final judgment has not occurred. However, a judgment has, because at the center of John's gospel says, now the judgment, now is the judgment. Now, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the prince of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He's talking about the crucifixion is doing something to the prince of this world. Who's the prince of this world? Satan. There's a legal thing that's going to take place that becomes the very heart and soul, not only of John's gospel there, but of the Revelation story in, in Revelation 12, where the very same thing is happening when, when Michael is casting the dragon out of heaven, and then he comes down and rages, you know, because he couldn't beat the little baby who, who, who rules with the rod of iron. So now he's going to go after the woman's uh, children. In other words, he's going to go after the church. Right, right. Well, and and there's something else that's really interesting that happens at the at the crucifixion is the whole the whole ripping of the veil. And I know that we we you know we we get that it's so symbolic. You know, we didn't need to be separated from the holy of holies. Yeah, and that's and I get that, and it's it's true. I'm not I'm not downing that, but there's something really interesting. That veil, I I heard a um, well, they my pastor talked on it a few weeks ago about the dimensions of the actual veil of the temple, and it was gigantic like gigantic huge and thick it was like it was literally close you know it was layer upon layer upon layer it's like something like seven or eight inches in thickness right yeah and the fact that it was almost almost like a contract like like ripped in half Mm. you know yeah so to me all these all these visuals just keep keep um just keep kind of kind of underscoring uh, underscoring the whole principle of of God, basically, he's not he's not revoking it, but he's basically saying, hey, you know that thing I told you about, how you were the prince of the you know of of, of the, the of the air and all that stuff. Yeah, I, I don't take it that seriously anymore. I, I've di- I've disinherited you. Yeah, is what it yeah, is. Exactly. And this guy, this guy over here, he he gets the legal the legal right to them all. That's right. The very thing you offered him in the temptation. Yeah, he now gets it because he he decided to go through with what the plan was. That's which right. Was which was to the suffering, the horror, the cross that you wanted to keep him from doing. Exactly. Exactly. So that's that's the Satan part of this. And, you know, um, these two are directly tied. So this this 70 nations evangelistic thing and the fact that the, now the princes of the nations have been disinherited, you can't have one of those without the other. Right. You can't have a legal right. And you, this is why you don't see it happen anywhere in the Old Testament. Yeah. There is no Israelite who becomes an evangelist to go to another place to start proclaiming the gospel so that people can then convert uh, and be saved. The only time that I'm aware of that you see this is Jonah. And Jonah hates the very idea of it. Like he's, <laughs> he goes, he goes, no, I'm like, I said, he goes to Spain. I'm not going to go over there right. because I know that you're a merciful God. Yeah. And so his sermon to those people is, in 40 days, you're all going to die. That's his sermon. Right? I, you got to love it. it. So this is not a guy doing a Billy Graham crusade. No. Yeah, yeah. He, 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 he was not happy. In fact, he got mad when they repented. You know? That's exactly right. And then <laughs> God's like, what, what, what right do you have to get mad? Don't, do I not have a right to care about the, the women in the in the and the and the cattle in and that dude, town. I mean, and it, I have that right. If you if you read when you read the account, it's funny actually. He was fuming. 
he wasn't just like annoyed or not happy. He was fuming. And you, right. I, you know, it talks about him sitting there and getting the sun beat on his bald head. And right. Just absolutely. Right. You know, so it's almost a funny, almost a funny visual, you know. It's a hilarious story. Oh, People yeah. who have never seen the uh, Bible Project videos on the different Bible books of the Bible, uh-huh. the one on Jonah is fantastic. <laughs> Highly recommend it. Because they, they talk about how the book of Jonah is really a satire. Yeah. And uh, and you can see that in exactly what you're talking about. So so my point is that, that you have to have the New Testament come along and a covenant change. There has to be a, a different order in the supernatural realm in order for a Christian to have the right to go into somebody else's turf yeah. to proclaim the gospel. Yeah. That took place at the cross so that now, legally speaking, Jesus has the right over the nations, even if those powers have not been removed from their throne. Right. He has a right to go in and take anybody out that he wants to take out. Right. Because of the cross. Yeah. So there's there's another aspect to these guys that is important to talk about, which are all these terms that we read about in these lists, especially from Paul. And, you know, uh, I'll give you some of the words, and then I'll give you a couple of the, of the verses to think about. There's words like principalities, rulers, or princes. We just saw that one actually with Satan. Authorities, uh, cosmic powers. The word in Greek is kosmokratoris. It's one of the great words of Greek. Thrones, dominions. Like, what are these things? I can remember reading the, through the Bible several times, just my eyes just glazed over there them. I had no idea what he was talking about. At best, I thought, okay, well, maybe a an authority would be some governor of a of a city or something like that. Yeah. Maybe a ruler would be a king. Yes, it's it doesn't exclude heavenly or, or earthly rulers, but it's talking so much more broadly than that. These are all Old Testament terms or ideas that are developed intertestamentally. Some are in the Old Testament that become a way to talk about, as Paul talks about, this present darkness, yep. right? So that one's in Ephesians six twelve. The verse says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Uh, so in that case, the um, rulers and authorities can't possibly be... Uh, can't possibly be men because he says that they're in heavenly places, right? That's right. Here's one more for you that I think is really, really, really important one. This is in Colossians chapter one. And it's talking about the preeminence of Christ. And um, it says, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That's a great one because the son, he's the, he's the son, sons of God. He's the son of God for by him, All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So here you have another one of these lists and Jesus is the one it, and this is really important, especially for people that struggle with the idea that gods are real. Okay. When we use the word God and we speak of it as a reality, this is why I like to say, well, okay, just say fallen angel, 
but technically it's God. And, and we're not putting Jesus on a par with the gods. This is not Jehovah's Witnesses here. Yeah. This is Jesus created all things, and that includes thrones, dominions, rulers, authority. That means by definition, Jesus created Satan. Right. Created him. Absolutely. I keep going back to the to the whole thing. There's a reason why, there's a very specific reason why, um, why the why the John three sixteen says for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Mm-hmm. There's a reason for that. He has other sons and that's not, don't, yes. don't, 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 don't send me hate mail on that. That's, that's biblical. Uh, he says it, his only begotten son. There's a difference that when we talked about the sons of God, he's talking about his other sons. Again, it's not, it's, it doesn't take away from the deity of Christ, from his holiness, from his special, from him being God. But, but this one was begotten. This wasn't created. <laughs> If that makes sense. Yeah, and the, the word begotten is really, really interesting. Um, and scholars have argued over its etymology. Yeah. And so I actually think that the word is a, at the very least a triple entendre yeah. because it's used for three different English words. One is begotten, and we see that in Psalm 2. Um, it, I have, this day I have begotten you. Right. Right. Um, I think that's what that verse says. Psalm 2, 7, I will tell the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son today, I have begotten you. Right. Well, what day? Well, that day was in eternity past. Right. I mean, he's always been the son. It, it, it's, a, it's a strange, it's a metaphor that necessarily breaks down because the only way we can think of begetting somebody is for it to have a beginning. But right. that's the whole point of what we just read in Colossians. He's before all things, through him all things hold together. How many things? All things. That's right everything the only way that can be is if he is god himself but he's he's the begotten god as john 118 says that then that verse was so mind-blowing to some scribe that he had to change the text because he couldn't believe that it would say begotten god so he, he changed it to begotten son right right exactly <laughs> right? exactly like how can you how can i wrap my mind around the fact that there's a begotten god but he's eternal and always existed well that's the that's the nature of the mystery of the trinity right Absolutely. So begotten is one word. Unique is another aspect of this. When um, you, you see this idea in Hebrews, uh, Hebrews 11, when Abraham has a son and it's Isaac, the same word. It's the only other time in the New Testament the word for only begotten is used, and it's used of Isaac. Why does that matter? Well, because uh, 13 years earlier, Abraham had Ishmael. Right. It's Isaac wasn't his only son. Right. He was his unique son. There is no other son like Isaac. And that's what the word begotten conveys with that in that sense. So he's he's begotten, he's unique. And then the third idea is that he is the beloved son. And this one is actually really a slam in the face to Satan more than anything, because um, this is what this is what Baal longs to be called in the Baal cycle when his brother Yom is the high God. And El is about ready to bestow on Yom the, the kingdom. He goes, you, Yom, are my beloved son. And, Baal, and, and he furiates Baal. And so Baal gets these two amazing weapons and he kills Yom because he wants, the, he wants to be called the beloved son. Well, right. what happens at the baptism? Jesus is called my beloved son. And what happens at the transfiguration? Which, by the way, the transfiguration almost certainly takes place on the very same spot that the Baal cycle take place yep. where um, El says to Yom, you are my 
beloved son. Very same place, but now it's not Yom, it's Jesus. Yeah. And who else is sitting there watching that? I think it's the same guy. It's Satan, it's Baal, and he is he is furious, so yeah. mad that he loses his mind and he ends up killing the beloved son, <laughs> not realizing that that's his very undoing. Right. One more thing. You want to talk about one more one more aspect Let's of this? Do it. It's the demons. You brought up demons earlier, right? Mm-hmm. So very important for people to understand that a demon is not a fallen angel. Like this is medieval theology that, that we get that from. It's not the Bible. Yeah. Demons are not fallen angels. When Jesus is dealing with demons throughout the New Testament, and by demons, let me be very more specific, unclean spirits or evil spirits, they're often called either one of those. Um, but the word demon is is fine for our sake here. Uh, Jesus deals with these guys all the time, and a demon is not a fallen angel. Satan is not a demon in this sense at all. Right. He's the father of the demons, right. the father of them. So when Jesus comes along and he starts dealing with these demons over and over and over, what's he doing? Well, this is the uh, this is the this is the war taken not to the fathers, the sons of God, which we've spent mo- our whole time talking about. Right. But now it's taken to their sons. It's taken to the Nephilim because every single person in the Jewish world and before second century AD and every single Christian, every single one without exception that we know that we have until about 350 AD, and really that goes until about 500 AD mm-hmm. for almost almost the, the, the fullness of it. They all believe that demons are the disembodied spirits of the Nephilim. Yeah. All of them. We have like 48 different resources, and it's 100% believe that, which really bugs me because when people uh, like to say that your view, the supernatural view of Genesis 6 is novel— no, sorry, it's not novel. It's the yeah. only view anybody held for three centuries in church history. That's right. My view is not the novel view. You need to go do your homework a little bit yeah. better. Okay, so Jesus is coming along, and, and what's he doing? He casts out the demons with just a word. I was talking with somebody else on a different podcast this week about this, and this is an idea that people don't understand. There were exorcists all over the ancient world, all over. Babylon had them. Israel had them. Greece had them. They were professionals, and this is what they did for a living. There still are exorcists all over the world to this day, yeah. and guess what? They were able to cast out demons a lot of times. It, they, it worked. You know, when a, when a Roman Catholic goes through his book of prayers, and he does all these things, even if the dude isn't a Christian, it can work. You can actually cast out a demon. What makes Jesus so different? Jesus doesn't have to do anything. He just says, he shows up. Um, be gone, and it's gone. Sometimes he doesn't even have to show up at all. Like if you if you say the word, then I'll then I know that it'll happen. Okay, I say the word, be gone, it's gone. Nobody else anywhere in all of history has been able to cast out a demon like that. Oh, that I mean, they would the see him. And... They would see him coming. They, they would see him coming, and they'd start freaking out. You know, they're the they're, they're the ones who call him the Son of God. Nobody else calls him That's that right. in the Gospels. That's right. It's the demons who call him that. They know who he is. Recognize him. Son of God. Well, where have I heard that title before? Right. I don't know. Maybe we've been talking about it for the last hour. He's the son of God. Why would the demons know that? Because who are their fathers? The sons of God. But they've been disembodied. They lost their bodies 
either in the flood or when they died. Right. Og didn't live forever. He right, died. Right. Goliath, he didn't live forever. He died. Zeus, still alive. He never died. So they're different. They're different. So well, and if you think about it, be... and if you think about it, there's so much. There's so much. There's several little nuances to that that, that really make you scratch your head. Um, why were the you you got to you got to you've got to understand that if you if you follow that worldview that you know or that or that understanding of demons, then you have to understand also that these guys, these demons, when when they were embodied in their in their hosts bodies they experienced all the things that men do you know food uh you know drinking uh sex all, all of the, all of those things they they experienced them and so that's to me it's really interesting that when they finally end up possessing something else and 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 Jesus would try to like get rid of them they they beg to go 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 in the pigs don't take away our don't, right. don't take away our capability of drinking again or, exactly. or eating again, you know, or procreating or whatever. So so it's really really interesting. I don't see any other reason why they would beg to not be thrown out. Totally agree. The, the, this whole idea of being disembodied and not being present with the Lord, for example, like a Christian would be. Um, I won't speak to the whole idea of hell and what happened down there in the Old Testament, or even even now, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. maybe maybe some other time. But they're disembodied. That's what they are. They're right. in, they're spirits of the air. They just kind of float around. I, now they have to have location, but they're not embodied in a way that you're talking about. And it's, I think that's exactly why they want to be thrown into the pigs. Yeah, they like the tactile, physical sensations that God has given had given to them. And he's given to this physical world. They don't have it they right feel, now they when they're disembodied. They feel alive again. Exactly. Well, they, in a sense, they are alive. Yeah. So the whole, the whole demonic infestation, especially that we see in the Gospels, but you see it in the book of Acts as well, um, Christians casting out demons and stuff, this is all part of the divine council worldview. Yeah. All of these lists that Paul talks about, with these strange titles of all these creatures that all of those titles have some kind of authority that's um, involved in, in the name. Uh, Satan himself, the battle with Satan, all the things Jesus does in the Gospels. You can go listen to my sermons on Luke, basically almost starting from Jesus' first, very first thing he does in ministry, all the way we're now in the crucifixion section. He's still doing it. Every single thing Jesus is doing is attacking Satan's kingdom. Yep. Why? Because the kingdom of Satan is the kingdom of this world, but Jesus come to bring a different kingdom, a kingdom from heaven itself yep. into this world through his church, through this new covenant. And all of this, you know, you don't understand the divine council worldview. Half of this stuff you're not even going to understand at all. Some of it you're going to misunderstand, and then a lot of it you're just going to have your eyes glaze over, and you're not even going to know what you're reading, and you're just going to move on. Right. And you're, gonna, you're not going to understand what it is that you're looking at. And, and I'm telling you, you're missing out on so much. Like, this, this worldview is so rich, and it has an ability to draw the Old and New Testaments together in ways that very few other things can. I could not agree more man and I, and I and I also feel like again going back to what I was saying before when you when you start seeing 
that all of these stories and all of these, you know, things that that we see in the Old Testament, like I said, we have a tendency to silo them, you know, into Bible stories, but they're really not. It's a stream of a stream of spiritual consciousness that 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 you know is is relevant to to the entire fabric of human earthly history. Um, obviously, the way the demons operated in the you know, 600 BC or, or, or 70 AD or 1492 AD, they keep evolving with the times to be relevant to the work they're trying to do in deceiving humanity, you know, so that brings us into the modern day. So it, it helps us to, it helps us to discern the modern attacks that we get, why we get them and where they come from, you know? Yeah, I think that that's one of the beauty of all the all the books that take place after the Gospels in the New Testament. Yeah. Is we, like in one sense, yeah, it's 2,000 years ago and there's a lot of cultural differences. But the, the fact of the matter is when you're talking about the age that, that, that they were part of, we're part of the same age. Yeah. We, we are not in that Old Testament age anymore. We're in, they were in the New Covenant. We are in the New Covenant. The things you see going on in Acts, the things you see go- going on today in yeah. whenever a, uh, a missionary goes into another country. I mean, these these things have not changed in our job. That's why Luke leaves it open ended. Right. It's why the Gospels and uh, sorry, the epistles of Paul, these letters, when they're talking about these kinds of things, they're just as relevant today to us as they were to the people living in the first century. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Same same adversary, you know. Same adversary. Same, Prowls around. Same, same cast of adversaries, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know. So there's there's the answer to that question that that uh, one of one of the people asked me. If any, if you know, if other people are watching and they want to ask questions, send them along. Go to go to my website, douglasvandorn.com, and and send me send me some questions, and and we'll see if we. We can address them. And while while we're on the subject, just know, guys, um, for for all you guys that are that are coming back and watching and commenting and all that, we are working towards eventually going live on this. We're having yeah. to. We're having to. We're trying to keep a certain. Not to sound snobby or anything, we're trying to keep a certain standard of of production for the for the the webcast, and so we've got we got, we have plans for it and whatnot. So just hang with us, and Lord willing, here in the next, you know sooner than later i'll leave it at that we'll try to actually yeah. <laughs> go we'll try to actually go live and and being able to go live is going to facilitate certain things it's going to make us it's going to make it easier for us to just to have more episodes to uh you know to to turn things around quicker and whatnot um but um but yeah that's that's coming that's on the horizon hopefully you know i saw that we have almost almost 500 uh subscribers yeah. to the youtube channel yeah that's pretty cool so what we need is we need a few more people to like that so we can we can hit that milestone <laughs> that right. would be a great milestone to get past exactly that'd be really cool that'd be really really cool so share it share the uh the webcast with uh with somebody who who likes to uh who likes to to study the bible in in the style that we do in a very uh, conversational and very um unorthodox i don't know if it's unorthodox but you know <laughs> we talk rock and roll man it's you know bad. we talk <laughs> yeah yeah it is you know you know rudy um Mike Kaiser died uh, a year ago, yeah. really kind of last week, mm-hmm. and there's a there's a there's a responsibility that those of us have kind of picked up his baton have.
because he's not here to do these things anymore. And it's an ongoing conversation. He's got so much information online. I have my own unique takes on it, but but these are things that, that we can't just stop talking about. But we have to have people talking about them that also know what they're talking about. Absolutely. And can and put the pieces together. And and there there are a few guys that I know out there that are doing that. But that's one of the things that we want to do yeah. here. It's not the only thing. You know, we talked about guitars a couple of weeks ago, but... And we'll, we'll keep doing that, but th- this is also an important thing that we definitely that we know people are interested in. That they also, I really want people to grasp why this is so important and how it's such a bigger thing than than most people have really ever considered. Yeah, no, absolutely. And man, I I feel like um, you're so right when it comes to that man because Tom Horn passed away. You know. Um, yep. yep. You know, I, I'm seeing it. I don't know how many times I, w- I was talking to uh, to Joe Horn about this. How we're we're seeing it all over the place. That old guard seems to be seems to be passing it. I'm seeing in in you know I I work a lot with um, media ministries and whatnot. They're dropping left and right, man. You know that a new guard has has a big responsibility for these times to um you know to to take over where, where that word where the work is being um. Where those, where those, where that guard is being relieved of their duty, you know, so, so we we take the challenge, you know. Fight the good fight, isn't that what Paul said? And that's and right. That good fight is as much a spiritual battle as it is anything else. Oh, ab- every bit of it, absolutely. So, and, you know, I love doing this. You want to know why I love doing this? It's the verse. It's the verse for this show. It's not just a, I mean, it's a catchphrase, but it's the verse. Yeah. I mean, it's the glory of God to conceal things. He likes to keep things hidden for his purposes. And one of the reasons why is because he knows it's the glory of kings to search things out. And when you come to discover these things um, yourself and you internalize them, they become part of who you are. And you can see we, you and I both get fired up at different different times and different parts of this very discussion. Because it's so life-changing. Yeah. And, I mean, it's just it's so cool that God gives us the privilege to be able to look into these things and discover them for ourselves. And the, the end of where we can go with this, there is no end to it. I mean, it's as, it, you can do it as basic, shallow as you want to and still get stuff out of it, but you can mine this mine to the very depths of the center of the earth. I mean, there's no... You're not you're not going to come up with a Balrog. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> who's going to start fighting against yeah, you? You yeah. you will just find treasure after treasure after treasure when you do it. The Bible says that he is a a jealous god, you know? And and so I I feel like he gets a I don't want to say a kick. He gets he's it's flattering to him to see us digging for answers, you know? Yeah. And even if that yeah. means even if that means, you know, sometimes clashing of ideologies um, but but he he likes that he likes to see us, you know, seeking out truth, seeking out truth in, in the things in the things that he's concealed. I mean, he's done that on purpose. It's almost like hiding Easter eggs for your kids. You know, he's concealed things yep. because in the searching, there's the growth. You know, there's your growth. Yep, exactly. So, um, if I so, if I may, um, we we kind of have it's, I, and I don't want to commit to this just yet. But we're going to have news pretty soon about Angels and Giants um, going on digital release. Probably going to happen in April. Ah. So they'll be able to go and see our work. Now, Angels and Giants is what for those who might be new listeners? Angels and Giants is the documentary in which Doug Van Dorn and I became buddies. We uh, That's exactly right. We, um, 
it's it's a, a comprehensive study on all things watchers and nephilim and it it was a it's it's been a <laughs> it's been a slow burn of a release it, technically we released it about less than a year ago um after working on it for almost three years but it you know it, right. it got it straddled the whole lockdowns and all that all that nonsense but it's a comprehensive comprehensive look so um yeah, I might, I might throw the. In fact, I'm gonna throw the trailer on the on, uh, heading out of the heading out of the, the sh- out of this show. If you wanna, if you wanna see it on the way out, um, but we'll have news about that, and we're not gonna get into the details of it or whatnot. But do know that we are working on new stuff as well. Uh, so I think it'll be, I think it'll be an interesting thing if you stick around. People are gonna love that because. Um... As much as I love the guys who did it on DVD, there's a lot of people that don't have DVD players anymore. Oh, yeah. Some people want no, that absolutely. download, man. So that'll be exciting for them Definitely. to be able to have opportunity Definitely. to see it that way. Yeah, and and we're very thankful for the for those that I mean, they, they, they were our first. Uh, way too many politics and too many things to talk about specifically um, why why we went to DVD first, but but I, I do have to give a major major kudos to the folks that that, that distributed us on DVD. It was um, I can't begin to say how amazing and special that was. So now that now that we've covered that, now we're like I said, now we've been blessed with finally with the opportunity to do you know to do a, a digital release and um, yeah, so that's coming. God willing, God willing in April. But uh, like I said, I'm not committing a specific date just yet. But there is information coming on that pretty soon. Awesome. Yeah. All right, my friend. Yeah, my brother. Good to be with you for yes, another sir. episode of Giants. That's Stars. right. Hit like and subscribe and tell your friends. Help us to reach. Take 500. that. Take that like button and and pretend it's a flag, and and take that flag all the way to the top of Mount Hermon and hoist it up as high as you can. That's right. There are stories in the Americas, most tribes from New Hampshire over to California talk about six fingers, red-haired giants that were 9, 10, 12 feet tall. There's over 500 tribes just in the United States alone. One thing that is prevalent in all the stories is stories of giants. The Shoshone, the Bannock, and the Paiute Indians all got together and formed one army, chased about 60 giants into the cave down at Lovelock, and then they piled brush in front of the cave and they lit it on fire. The Native Americans didn't have anything nice to say about the red-haired giants. They were cannibalistic, they were sexually perverse, sadistic. Bite your head off, drink all the blood out of your body. And then throw the body down. Like popping a, a top off a of Coca-Cola. My brother's 6'6", six, 6'7". Six, six, this thing was a lot bigger than my brother. We followed her downstairs into the basement, and then she opened this cabinet, and there were the bones. see the face rock in front of us that was the place where the high the library the books the dead sea scrolls that among them we found a famous book of enoch you have these beings who belong in the spiritual realm choosing to trespass and enter the natural realm in a legal way members of the divine realm were allowed to come through a portal from one dimension into our dimension 
Tiger at what they call Gilgal Rephaim, which translates loosely as Wheel of the Giants. So the reason why all this matters is because Bashan, which also means the land of the serpent, was the place where the giant Og reigned during the days of Moses. And Og's name can mean circle. And we're sitting here in a pile of 42,000 tons of stone circles that there's no way you can appreciate it unless you're high up in the sky. Early Israelites identified it as the work of giant. Therefore, it seems sufficient to say that in its ancient context, Circle of the Giants is a better translation of Gilgal Raphaim. I'm not like this, and I'm soaking up this energy. There's a very special energy here. Could some of these wonders be the metaphorical handprints of the giants spoken of in Genesis? you are able to access the different spiritual realms through the manipulation of energy. And so the belief is that you're doing so by increasing the vibration in your different energy bodies. This is Plaza de Armas in Cusco, Peru. This is the region where the strongest evidence for the presence of the Watchers and the Nephilim on Earth can be found. And this is probably the largest megalithic wall in the world. The Inca found this site, so they decided to build here. When the Spanish first arrived, they were completely blown away. And they said, did you build this? And the Inca said, no, this was here when we got here. This is the biggest, 125 tons. Are you capable of meeting with the Watchers, the Guardians? In our culture, from the fifth level of consciousness and higher, it is like having an afternoon meeting. Rabbit ears on a cat figure, which represents the Son of God, Horus. And you have the Tree of Light with the snake, so it's one of the chaos creatures coming out or through the Tree of Life. What the Son of God is doing is he is crushing the head of the serpent and then slicing it off. What it says in the hieroglyphs above here, he will strike your heel, but you will crush his head. This pyramid is 2.3 million blocks, the smallest of which is two and a half tons. The biggest ones, the bigger ones, are up to 15 tons. These nodules we also saw in Peru. And how can there be nodules here and the same exact type of architecture literally halfway across the world in Peru? Very separate civilizations, same technology. Why? 